This morning I want to ask two questions and I want to admit uh, right here at the beginning that I uh, have no answers for you, um, not because I don't want to or wouldn't have an opinion or three to throw around, but because the questions that I want to ask I think have to be answered by us individually and maybe in the deepest places of our hearts. That's not to say we should not enlist our sisters and brothers in finding answers. It's just to say that some things need to be discovered internally, personally, contextually, and don't respond well to generic prescriptions. The first question is, what is it that holds you captive? The second question follows the first. What would it look like for you to be set free? They're questions that, for me at least, spring naturally from our reading from Acts. <clears throat> Paul and Silas are still in Philippi following their meeting with Lydia and the formation of the first small gathering of believers. They're on their way to the place of prayer, uh, probably that same riverside where they first met Lydia and her friends. Luke is walking with them, as the story goes. And so this part of the narrative is told in the first person plural. And somewhere along the way, they meet a slave girl who was possessed by a spirit which enabled her to tell the future. Because of this, she was a valuable asset to her owners until, that is, the moment when she irritated Paul. Now, Paul is one of those people that I think I'd like to meet, um, though I might want to have an attorney present when I do. <laughs> so, uh, Elvin, uh, when we get to heaven, I'm going to look you up before I go to any of those uh, welcome to eternity socials. I mean, Paul is brilliant. There's no doubt about it. Paul is just plain brilliant. There's this very sharp and focused mind at work in him. And there's also this poetic mind at work. Um, he can cut to the chase with the best of them, all sharp edges and righteous anger. But he's also capable of breathtaking rhetorical flights, showing us glimpses of the unknowable sentences and phrases which continue to uh, be repeated all these centuries later. And Paul is also capable of an irascibility that was probably charming from a distance, but sometimes made him difficult to be with in close quarters. Um, he's capable of being a grump in the best Old Testament fashion as he is in our story today. And, and how wild is it that the slave girl is freed from her spiritual captivity, not out of some high motivation, but because she annoyed the soul out of Paul? And how cool is it that Luke records the truth of it and didn't feel compelled to polish it up with nobler intentions? The slave girl was following Paul and Silas and their friends around and announcing over and over and over again that these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaimed you a way of salvation. These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation, like a walking neon sign or, or an ice cream truck incessantly jingling or one of those street corner preachers with a bullhorn. The unnamed young woman keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again, following them until finally Paul snaps and casts the spirit out of her. I mean, how marvelous is it, this exorcism driven by apostolic irritation now, we can add some pious flourishes to the scene and argue that Paul was annoyed in the same way that Jesus was troubled in his spirit, that, that what annoyed Paul, what angered him was the fact of the young woman's captivity, but that's not what Luke suggests. He makes it sound as if Paul would have walked right on by the enslaved young woman had she not driven him to distraction by her incessant proclamation. And I say, good for Luke. Reminders that the heroes of our faith were just plain people capable of having a bad day and being irritated, I think, are good for us. They 
not only serve to pull them down a peg or two in our imagination, putting them closer to where they rightly belong, but they can also help us put our own high horses back in the stable where they belong. So Paul gets annoyed, then the young woman gets released from her captivity. Now notice that nothing else is said about her. We hear about her owners who exploited her for great profit, but the young woman herself just vanishes from the story, which is a shame because her brief appearance and deliverance raised some questions that I would really like to have answered. Like, what about her physical enslavement? Paul doesn't seem concerned about that, or if he is, there's no mention of it. Do her owners set her free, since she's of no further value to them, or do they sell her off to the highest bidder? What happens to her next? Is she, is she rescued by Lydia and given shelter in a kind of first century underground railroad? We don't know. But it's instructive, I think, to hold on to those questions about this young woman as we consider the two questions with which the sermon began, because they suggest to me at least that the only true release from our various captivities might well be that which comes as we take our final breath, that part of the human condition, if I can be so grand, um, is that no sooner are we released from one kind of captivity than we are likely to be caught up by another, which makes sense theologically. We do proclaim that our salvation has already come in Christ Jesus, but we also proclaim, we also admit and confess that that salvation will not be fully revealed until the day of his return. And so here in the in-between time, we struggle, we wrestle with principalities and powers, we live lives of holy resistance, and we work together to call others to liberation and peace in the way of Christ. As we're freed from one form of captivity, we are not necessarily suddenly entirely perfect and holy and incapable of misstep. No, we continue to hobble along like people of faith always have, trusting not in our own strength or our own sight or our own ability to recognize a trap or a pitfall when we see it, but relying instead on the spirit of Jesus, which we trust is always ready to set us free again, always ready to keep leading us in the right path, and always ready to come looking for us when we slip away or wander off and get ourselves all tangled up in the briars or snared in the hunter's trap. Now, for my part, I prefer to imagine the young woman, now freed of her demonic captor, following after the spirit of Christ that released her. I'd prefer to think that she was also set free by her human captors and that she found refuge among the new believers meeting in Lydia's house. I'd like to think that she was the star of the show for a while, telling the strange story of her release to everyone who would listen, making them laugh as she told them how red Paul's face was when he snapped and turned around and set her free in the name of Jesus. That's how I prefer to imagine her future. But no matter what her life was like following her disappearance from the story, I'd like to think that she followed much the same path that we all do, from glory to glory, from bondage to freedom, slowly making her way after Jesus. But setting aside my wishes um, and moving back to the story, we find that the young woman's owners are not happy about this sudden turn of events because no more divination means no more income. And so the owners haul Paul and Silas into court. Now notice that they don't accuse Paul and Silas of costing them money. No, they accuse them of being political agitators. They accuse them of being Jews. And they accuse them of questioning Roman religious practices, all of which is enough to get... Paul and Silas flogged and tossed into jail where they're placed in the innermost cell and in the stocks, the kind of treatment that we'd expect for violent criminals and traitors. 
And so now in a narrative twist, it's Paul and Silas who are being held captive and are in need of being set free. Now, one interesting side note for those of you who care about the Greek. Um, the Greek word kyrios is used five times in this passage, which I think is enough to make us wonder maybe if Luke is up to something. The word can be and is translated in all sorts of different ways in the New Testament according to the context. And so here in these verses, it's translated as owners in verses 16 and 19, sirs in verse 30, and Lord in 31 and 32. But just as a sort of thought experiment, if we were to translate each occurrence as Lord or Lords, we might say that what Luke is inviting us to consider here is who really is or ought to be our Lord. Which of the various lords available to us is the one who truly sets us free? It's a pretty good thing for any disciple to think about, right? How many lords do we serve? And which one commands our first loyalty? And which one can really set us free? This is, as I said, a bit of a sidetrack. But I think it's one that relates very much to the two big questions from the first page of the sermon. Because some lords are, in fact, the source of our captivity. While Jesus, the Lord, is always in the process of setting us free. All human lords hold us captive in some way, even if without any sinister intent. Their ties bind us to them, sometimes in ways which enrich us or make our lives easier, sometimes in ways which pen us in or hold us down or in some other way prevent us from being fully whom God has called us to be. And so we turn to the one true and living Lord and ask to be set free and In between those two realizations, the the realization that a particular Lord is holding us captive and the realization that only Christ the Lord can set us free, in between those two realizations, there's a lot of discernment that needs to happen. These questions of lordship also seem quite relevant and necessary as we consider the larger questions from page one. Well, now comes the shaking. Paul and Silas start singing and the walls fall down. I don't know what they were singing, but it apparently had all the musicality of pots and pans being beaten together because just like an old Jericho, the walls come tumbling down. The singing Paul and Silas did was apparently on the joyful noise end of tunefulness. Or maybe they were just loud, or, or maybe they sang with all the beauty of the angels and God was so moved that God toppled the walls in order to hear them more clearly. However it happened... Suddenly, there was a whole lot of shaking going on. Not only did the walls shake and the doors open, but the chains and the prisoners were loosed, and Paul and Silas were set free. And now we come to the last character in the story, the last captive to be set free, and that's the jailer. Now, the jailer is, in in my imagination at least, a bit of a hapless character. In my mind's eye, I see Barney Fife from the old Andy Griffith show. All Adam's apple and good intentions, and with all the ferocity of a chihuahua, aggressive and snarling, but really hard to take seriously. Um, it's, just, it's just my imagination running away with me again. Um, so Jailer Fife wakes up when the earthquake hits, and he sees what happens to his jail, and he decides to end it all, which is an operatic gesture to be sure, but, well, one that probably had some basis in reality. After all, his one job, his one job was to make sure that the prisoners remained prisoners. This was his livelihood. We may not admire it, but it was what he did. It was how he earned his keep, how he kept bread on the table, how he brought home the bacon, which, by the way, he was allowed to do since he was a Gentile. 
an employee of the empire, a not very forgiving or understanding lord under the best of circumstances, and having the jail fall apart on your watch was not the best of circumstances. Now, an earthquake was clearly not his fault, but such nuance often got lost um, when Rome was searching for a scapegoat. All that to say, I think we should pity poor jailer Barney, who saw his livelihood and perhaps his life fall to pieces literally all around him. And so he drew his sword and was about to do the honorable thing, but Paul got loud again. Do not harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer came in and threw himself on the floor before Paul and Silas, and he asked the most important question anybody can ask. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. So the jailer ran and got his whole family out of bed and came back uh, with them and some pans of hot water and some claws. And while Paul and Silas preached the word of the Lord, the jailer cleaned their wounds and dressed them. And when all was said and done, the jailer and his family were baptized believers. The Philippian church was a little bit bigger and everybody rejoiced together. The jailer and his household were set free. Free from a captivity they likely could not even name. There was no obvious demonic possession, no prison walls, no chains on their ankles, but captive all the same, if only to their ignorance of Jesus and his saving grace. Only made aware of it in the moment of crisis, that life and death moment, that moment when everything had literally crashed around his ears, suddenly aware of his need to be set free, to be saved, to be released from captivity, the jailer asks, what must he do? And Paul and Silas tell him, and he was set free. Which raises the question, for me at least, of how often we are held captive without even knowing it. How we can be lulled into thinking that all is well, that we are free indeed, only to discover in the blink of an eye and to th- that um, we are indeed bound and in need of saving. How we can suddenly wake up and find ourselves contemplating the sword in our hands, the means of our own destruction, and only then call out for rescue. It's a remarkable thing, this being freed from what we don't even know is holding us captive, no less a miracle, I think, than an exorcism where the prison door is being flung open by an earthquake. Saved from what we know not and to a new life in Christ Jesus. The most remarkable thing to consider as we finally return to the two questions that I raised all those pages ago. What is it that holds you captive? And what would it look like for you to be set free? Now, as I said earlier, these are not the kinds of questions um, that someone can answer for you, at least I think. Um, We contemporary Christians are certainly prone to assuming that responsibility for others, not at all shy to say exactly what sin binds somebody else, what moat is in their eye, what cleansing has to happen in the other before she or he can rightly be named Christian. We're all too good at pointing the finger at Somebody else's cage, all too often, I think, are guided by our own fear of captivity uh, more than by any genuine concern or wisdom. Indeed, I think we contemporary Mennonites are ourselves held captive to a spirit of self-righteous judgmentalism that we often disguise as a quest for purity that permits us to exclude those whom we find distasteful or otherwise unseemly. And I think that's a captivity that is suffered by those of us on either end of the theological spectrum. Rather than indulge our tendency to be judgmental, I'd like to invite us instead to something much more humble and, I hope, charitable. That is, I would invite each of us to consider 
in our, the quiet of our own hearts what it is that holds us captive. Let's invite the Spirit to guide us. Let's count in the Spirit to guide us. Let's lean on the Spirit to tell us the truth about ourselves and what holds us captive. And then after we have done our praying and our self-examining examining and our listening, then let's seek out some close companions on the way, folks who love us and trust us and are committed to our well-being, and, and tell them what we think we're hearing and ask them what they hear as they listen to us and then ask them to help us see what maybe we're missing and then ask them to pray with us for our release. And then having done that, turn the tables and offer that same grace to them as they describe what the Spirit is telling them. When we engage in our own spirit-led self-examination first, I think we're more able to assume the posture of a penitent and so may be less inclined to be defensive when exploring our own captivity and judgmental when considering the captivity of our sisters and brothers. By inviting our trusted sisters and brothers into this exploration, we can replace the chains that bind us with cords of accountability and grace, cords which don't chafe or imprison, but instead help us keep our bearings and maintain our equilibrium as we follow after Jesus together. Now this is all, I readily admit, a far cry from Paul's annoyed, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. I still suppose there may still be occasions when such commands are to be given, but I think, and perhaps this is typical of a soft, mushy, contemporary Mennonite, but I think we do better to err on the side of quiet and tender and prayerful attending to one another from a servant's posture rather than the prophetic posture. You be the judge. Well, as we discover what holds us captive and as we pray for release, I would invite us then to imagine what it would be like to be set free and then to hold on to that imagined outcome, that imagined future, and, and keep it before us as a promise of our freedom. Too often, I think, we get so overwhelmed by the size of our prison and by the many chains and, and strings that keep us attached and captive Remember our struggles with the notion of empire um, a year and a half ago and, and how quickly overwhelmed um, we can become when we start thinking about being liberated by some, from something so huge and all-encompassing. How quickly we can give it up is hopeless, resigning ourselves to being compromised forever, caught and unable to be set free. And, and then how quickly we can settle back into our previous captivity, settling in and, and waiting for Jesus to come and get us out in the end, once and for all. But I wonder what would happen if, instead of giving in to the sheer size and scope of our captor and its reach, what would happen if we imagined ourselves to be free, if we developed the capacity to imagine what that would be like? Maybe not trying to cut all the strings at once, but instead just finding, say, one string, and then imagining what it would be like to cut it, just that one and so be able to flex a muscle a little bit more freely. And then another string, and, and the same dreaming, and, and then another. Not worrying so much about making the big jailbreak, but trusting that to the one who saved us. And so, in the meantime, being content to untie or cut one string at a time, inviting the Spirit and our sisters and brothers to help us locate the next logical string to cut, and then counting on the Holy One to wield the scissors. I don't know what binds you. I don't know what holds you captive. But I think we're all held captive by something. We're all kept back. We're all 
held back from being entirely free in our pursuit of Jesus and our becoming everything God wants us to be. Our captor may be spiritual. Our captor may be institutional. Our captor may be material. Our captor may be systemic. Our captor may be psychological or medical. Our captor may be entirely unknown to us. But we're all held captive in one way or another. We're all tempted to call others Lord, to place our trust in the skill or strength or wisdom of others, to place our lives in the hands of the state or the job or the retirement plan. But our story from Acts makes clear that that Christ can and will set us free. Christ can and will rescue us from our captivity. Christ can and will break down the walls and release the chains and set us free to keep on following after. We may well stumble right back into some other prison or find ourselves returning to the one we just left or in some other way falling away from the path of freedom. But Christ does not leave us behind. Christ does not leave us to our just deserts. Christ does not leave us to our own devices. Every prison will be shattered. Every chain will be released. Every evil spirit will be cast off. Every human oppression will be destroyed. Every sickness will be healed. And death itself will be overcome. In fact, we proclaim that these things have already come. They have already come in Christ Jesus. As it was in Philippi, so it is in Lancaster. As it was in the first century, so it is today. The ending of our story, the ending of our story is not captivity. It's freedom. A freedom won by Christ himself, carried out with a whole lot of shaking by the Holy Spirit. A shaking that began on that first Easter and continues to this day. A shaking that will continue until every last captive is set free. And that, dear sisters and brothers, includes you and it includes me. Thanks be to God. Amen.